what determines someone's worth? What if they're young, dependent, inconvenient? Or what if they walk or talk different? Does that change it? they have different color hair or skin? What if this person is anxious or sick or even questioning their own life? Is my life more valuable than theirs? Who determines that? Well, good morning, church. Uh, does anyone out there need to be reminded about the promises of God for his people, right? I know I do. Good, good. I see those hands. Yes. Well, we are incredibly excited to share what God will say through this series, and we hope that you do indeed come back with us next week, whether in person or online. Today, as Pastor Dave alluded to, we are concluding our series on dignity, and we've through this whole series, been examining the worth of every human life. Today, we've come to the end, literally. Right, today we're going to discuss dignity and the end of life. Now, several years ago, there was a film that was released entitled Me Before You. The movie tells the story of a man named Will Trainer, who's a successful banker and who has everything going for him. He's got a good relationship with his girlfriend, He's got wealth, he's got a rising career, he's got enviable athleticism. But one morning on his way to work, Will is struck by a motorcycle and as a result is permanently paralyzed from the waist down. This is a devastating turn of events. Will's life afterward just falls apart. He loses his girlfriend, he loses his ability to be active, he becomes extremely depressed. Now, in response to this, his mother, who cares for him, decides to hire a young woman named Louisa to be Will's companion and help take care of him, and the two form a bond. Much of the movie focuses on their relationships, relationship, and yet, Will remains dissatisfied with his disabled life and decides it is no longer worth living. So he makes a plan to check into a facility called Dignitas in Switzerland, a facility that specializes in assisted suicide. By the way, this is a real place. Despite Louise's best efforts to convince him otherwise, the film ends with Will, indeed, checking into Dignitas and ending his life. Now, the film was really controversial because it seemed to glorify this action. The message seemed to be Will Trainer died on his own terms, and that was dignity. Now, interestingly, Dignitas is a Latin word, and it was originally a Roman concept that included our modern idea of dignity. The tagline, as you can see up there, was to live with dignity and to die with dignity, which raises, raises really a crucial question for us in this series. What does it mean to die with dignity? Now, truthfully, I think this film has a different opinion on dignity than we've been using in this series. For Will Trainer, the loss of his former life included a loss of meaning, Thus, dignity meant the ability to end his own life before he suffered more. 
By contrast, I would argue that the Christian view of dignity is this. Every human life has value because God gives it to us. Additionally, there's meaning in suffering as God teaches us greater to trust in him with much greater endeavor. In times of suffering, God becomes more real. Now, these two different views of dignity, especially as it relates to suffering, are in conflict. As such, end-of-life issues like assisted suicide and euthanasia have gained popularity and acceptance in our modern culture despite their ethical issues. In fact, nine states in the United States, including New Jersey, have legalized this practice. So organizations such as the Society for the Right to Die have labored to pass legislation to legalize assisted suicide. Now, to be clear, there are two, generally two options under this umbrella of assisted suicide. First, there is physician-assisted suicide. And in this scenario, a physician will usually prescribe a lethal dose of a medication that becomes the means by which a person can take their own life. Secondly, there is euthanasia. This is sometimes called mercy killing. It refers to the direct and intentional efforts of a physician, usually through lethal injection, to help a dying patient die. Now, I imagine many of us bristle at these possibilities. Why would someone consider these practices, we ask? Well, when disability strikes, as people live longer and experience terminal diseases, as people consider the cost of care and when suffering becomes unbearable, we start to wonder what is compassionate. Perhaps a loved one is battling excruciatingly painful cancer and has been doing that for a long time and has been given months to live. And you know taking a life is wrong, but it's difficult to watch the person you love suffer. In those moments, we ask, what does it look like to face death with dignity? Now, during this COVID-19 pandemic, far too many people have been confronted with end-of-life issues. Loved ones have been put on ventilators. Doctors have moved them to palliative care. Family members are pressured to make decisions. What does it look like to choose life? Is it really the end of life, we ask? What does dignity look like? How do we uphold the value of human life in these situations? And many times, these scenarios are emotionally complicated, We'll speak of a few examples later on. But I would just say, in contrast with Will Trainer's assumption, Christians believe that human life has value even through suffering. And yet, Scripture teaches this reality, death comes for us all. Right now, all of us, right at this very moment, all of us are aging, moving towards the end of life. What does the psalmist proclaim in Psalm 71? He says, do not cast me off, in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. He says, do not cast me off. Do not cast me off in my time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. Now, this verse is a petition, meaning the author is making an appeal to someone in authority. In other words, the psalmist is appealing to his God. He says, Lord, you have been with me for a lifetime do not cast me off now. Please be faithful to me, even when my enemies have cast doubt on my life. And the last enemy, we're told, in the New Testament, is death. And there's a principle here. If we believe that our God cares about life 
And if the psalmist is pleading with God not to cast him off in his old age, neither should we. At the end of life, just as at the beginning of life and everywhere in between, we give people the dignity they are due by entrusting them to our Heavenly Father. And yet so often we treat the elderly like outcasts. If someone is terminally ill and their strength has left them, we forsake them. How do we offer dignity at the end of life? Now, I know this subject can feel morbid, right? It can feel like a downer, but it is real life, and it touches us all. And so what I'm going to encourage us to do here is wrestle with three imperatives. The first one is this. We have to embrace the Christian view of death. Second, we have to reject the secular view of death. And then finally, never neglect the aged. Let's ask God for help as we begin here. Heavenly Father, would you be with us during this time? Would you help us to understand with greater discernment what it looks like to offer dignity, what it looks like to care, what it looks like to to give you glory in difficult scenarios? I pray for my friends who may be walking through this, whether it's for themselves or for someone they love. Would you give us grace? And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the Christian view of death falls under the theological category of eschatology, and that's the doctrine of the last things. Now, that's further split into cosmic eschatology, which is the doctrine of the world ending, and then there's personal eschatology, which is what happens to us individually at the end. What does Scripture say about death? Well, first, Scripture teaches that death is inevitable, Death is inevitable. Solomon famously wrote this in Ecclesiastes 3. He said, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. Now Solomon pens these words in his old age. Right? He writes Song of Solomon in his youth when he's pursuing romance. He writes Proverbs in middle age when he's gaining wisdom. And then he writes Ecclesiastes when he's old and depressed. Or put another way, he he writes this book after he's lived a long life, nothing surprises him, he's seen it all, and he simply says death is inevitable. The truth has some practical implications for us, and the first thing I would say is this, it's okay to discuss death. Now I know some people resist this conversation because in their minds it reveals a lack of faith. We must believe God will heal us. Well, maybe he will. However, I would point out that final healing only happens in the new heavens and the new earth. At some point, we will pass from this life to the next. So give yourself permission to have that conversation. Additionally, it's okay to make preparations. Again, people resist this conversation because it is sad, it is painful. But it's much easier for family members if they know your wishes and if your affairs are in order after you pass. To this end, there's a great resource that I would recommend called The Five Wishes, which help you talk through these end-of-life decisions. These questions, it, it, it's a manual that walks you through questions like, who will make final decisions? Next slide, please. What kind of medical treatment do you want? What do you want your loved ones to know? It is a helpful guide. And if you like a copy, you can talk to myself or Pastor Dave. Now, the second truth that Scripture teaches is that after death, we will face judgment. We will face judgment. Hebrews 9.27 makes this clear. It says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. 
Now, this verse reaffirms that death is inevitable, but it also confirms that we will stand before a holy God after death. How we have lived in this life matters. Now, a verse like this also inspires the fear of death in many people, and I also suspect it's why people try to delay death as long as possible. Judgment is necessary because of sin, which brought death to all people. Paul writes this in Romans 5. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, the Christian view of death is grounded in the reality of the fall of humanity, which Pastor Dave spoke about in week one. In fact, this slide right here shows the four phases of redemption. So before Genesis 3, there was no death. And sin entered the world. And when it did, our relationship with God was shattered, and the result was death, both physical and spiritual. This is the fall phase. Death is inevitable. However, if we surrender to Jesus Christ, we are promised eternal life and the end of death. That's redemption. Redemption is possible. And then finally, the world, this world is not the end. There's more. That's the consummation phase. So along with that, the Scripture teaches us that Christians can face the end of life knowing that resurrection is guaranteed. Resurrection is guaranteed. Paul passionately proclaims this to the Corinthians. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. How do we offer dignity at the end of life? We remind people that someone came back from the dead. What does Paul say? He says, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits, which that phrase means that he's the first of many to come. Right? Death came through Adam, but through Jesus, death was reversed. It's no more. The end of life is really the beginning of forever life. The Christian view of death is that death is dead. Paul concludes, he says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So what are the implications of the Christian view of death? Well, we learn that death is simultaneously an enemy and a normal part of life. So first, it's an enemy. Since death entered the world through sin, it is not natural. It is alien to us. It is an enemy that we battle it wasn't supposed to be this way. In fact, ethicist, Dave, I'm sorry, ethicist Paul Ramsey argued that death is an indignity inconsistent with man's eternal destiny in Christ. So our bodies now age and break down. We can't take care of ourselves eventually. Aging is a humbling reminder that death comes for us all. It's not the way it's supposed to be, right? And I wonder, listen, I wonder if, when we get to heaven, if we're going to get our 25-year-old bodies back, yeah. Wouldn't that be something? Now, my wife has worked for years in nursing homes, and she's witnessed end-of-life dignity issues firsthand. Families stop seeing their loved ones frequently. Caretakers get frustrated because their aging loved ones require so much time and attention. Diseases like dementia can suck the life out of the person you once knew. The stress, the exhaustion, the personal pain can lead to forms of abuse, both physical and spiritual. In fact, some of us just want this long season to end. But every person, 
every human being is valuable, whether they are a baby at the beginning of life who need our care, or whether they are a parent or grandparent at the end of life needing our presence. Death is an enemy that seeks to interrupt that dignity. Now let me pause here and offer a word of advocacy for the dignity of the aged. In this entire series, we have discuss the marginalization of certain stigmatized groups. So we've talked about those with mental health issues, those with special needs, talked about uh, ethnic and racial issues, dignity and abortion, the unborn. When it comes to dignity in the end of life, we're also talking about a form of what, I, what I've heard called ageism as you grow old. Does anyone feel that society wants to cast you off because you're no longer, quote-unquote, relevant? This is not right, and it doesn't offer seniors the dignity that they're due. For example, during during COVID, those over 65 have been disproportionately affected by severe disease, and so grandparents are put on ventilators, and palliative care doctors seem to quickly move to end-of-life scenarios, but let me ask you a question. If that was my four-year-old, would they be so quick to do the same thing? Now, what do we say, right? Oh, they're old. They've lived their life. Does, Does life somehow become less valuable as you age? No. And we should advocate for our loved ones in these scenarios because death is an enemy, and we should fight for life. We must not marginalize our seniors. Do not cast me off in my old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent, the psalmist says. Now, at the same time, death is a normal part of life. Death is a normal part of life. And so I would point out that for the Christian, since death has been defeated, we don't need to delay death forever. What does Paul write to the Philippians? He says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is what? It's gain. To be absent With the body is to be present with the Lord, right? Sometimes the way of showing dignity to someone at the end of life is to give them permission to go and be with Jesus. Now, obviously, this should be done with much prayer and care and counsel, and I know that it's difficult, but death is, in the Christian view, death is a conquered enemy that does not need to be always resisted. Now, I've shared up here before that my my father passed away when I was young. He himself was young. And over the course of my life, I've had this fear that I, too, would die at a young age. And and one time I was sharing this with a Christian counselor, and at the prompting of the Spirit, she looked at me and she said, you know what, Lord, would you help Bob to know that he will go home to be with you when you decide that it's time, not before and not after. The Lord holds our life in his hands. So let me pause here and addressed a practical scenario that many are faced with. The question of when do you terminate life support? Now, sadly, this is a question, again, that many have encountered during COVID. A loved one's on a ventilator, and future hope seems futile. The breathing apparatus, the feeding tube, is the only thing that's keeping them alive. In fact, a number of years ago, my uncle survived a massive heart attack. But during the course of that, The loss of oxygen damaged his brain, and there was little hope that he would survive once that ventilator was removed. What do you do? Let me offer a few principles. First, if there is a possibility, even a remote 
possibility that someone can recover from an illness after needing a ventilator fall on the side of life. Fall on the side of life. In those moments, there may be pressure from doctors to choose otherwise, but if there's any doubt, choose life. Second, these scenarios often are unclear, and so therefore we must pray and pray and pray and seek the Lord because withdrawing treatment I know is extremely difficult for family members. No one wants to feel responsible for ending a person's life. Making these difficult decisions requires prayer and counsel and discernment. I believe that God performs miracles and we should have faith in his power. At the same time, as I said before, God will call us home when it's time. If you're a Christian, death is a conquered enemy that does not need to always be resisted. And so I think as we pray and as we wrestle through these decisions, the Holy Spirit will make it clear what the next steps are. Death is inevitable. And our Heavenly Father holds us in the palm of his hand. Now that does not make it easy, but it does allow us to rest. Now I'd offer another caveat here about the assisted suicide issue our will trainer example from the beginning. The fact that death is an inevitable part of life does not make it permissible to take innocent life, not even your own. God decides when it's time to go, not us. And while there may be a time to remove that life support and allow death to run its natural course, assisted suicide goes against those biblical principles of the sanctity of human life. So as people face the inevitability of the end of life, there's two tangible ways I think we can offer dignity. First, presence. Presence. So perhaps the greatest tragedy, again, of this COVID-19 pandemic has been the reality of dying alone. While video calling helps, people are meant to be in the arms of their loved ones at the end. Physical touch communicates dignity. Our loved ones are not lepers but image bearers making their journey to Aslan's country, if you're a C.S. Lewis fan. Second, lament. Lament. As Christians, we don't like to do that. We always want to be happy. However, lamenting at the loss or looming loss of a loved one actually communicates that they're valuable. It communicates they're loved. Let them see you lament over them. Dr. Douglas Groteis, one of my seminary professors, wrote a memoir about the loss of his wife to dementia. For years, he watched her deteriorate, and eventually it took not just her mind, but her life. The memoir is called Walking Through Twilight. In his chapter on lament, he reminds us that lament requires a knowledge of God, the world, and ourselves. And he says only Christians can properly do this as we heed the words again of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 7, where he says, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Death is the destiny of everyone. The wise go to the house of mourning. Fools go to the house of pleasure. Because the Christian view of death propels us toward dignity at the end of life. 
But it's not enough to simply know the Christian view of death. We must, secondly, reject the secular view of death, which influences us much more than we know. The Christian view of death is based on God's wisdom. The secular view of death is based, takes us to the house of fools because the, the pleasure is the chief end of humanity. The secular view removes God from the equation. Now, you may have heard, or your phone notified you, that uh, well-known TV talk show host Larry King died last week. Now, it's unclear if he died from COVID, although he was hospitalized for it. He was 87. And Larry King was the poster child for the secular view of death because he often spoke candidly about death in interviews, stating that he wanted to be frozen after he passed because he didn't believe in the afterlife. Now, what was his reasoning? His reasoning was was this. He said, I'd hope to wake up in 100 years after they cured whatever I died of, and I'd be alive again. Now, Larry King, I think, is realizing now that Hebrews 9.27 was true. The secular view of death sees this life as it. There's nothing beyond the material world. And so as a result, death should be delayed as long as humanly possible. And this view has given rise to a whole philosophy called transhumanism, which advocates believe one day we'll be able to wed our brains to artificially intelligent computers, allowing our consciousness to live on. This is common in science fiction shows nowadays. The secular view of death, though, makes two mistakes that thwart dignity at the end of life. And the first is that faith rests in scientism. In the Christian worldview, death is the boundary line at the end of our earthly lives. In a worldview shaped by scientism, this is not so. It should, in fact, I should make clear that scientism is not the same thing as using science itself as a tool. Scientism takes science and turns it into a pseudo-religion. This religion is shaped by the belief that humans can outsmart even death. In other words, death is not a divine decree, but merely a technical problem. So a recent advertisement from the pharmaceutical company Pfizer illustrates this. In the commercial, a scientist from Pfizer is shown holding a sign that says, Science will win. And then a company spokesperson gets up and makes this statement. At a time when things are uncertain, we turn to the most certain thing there is, science. Now, the advertisement came out before the recent vaccine, and I'm not suggesting that through the scientific process we can't achieve amazing results, right? Like creating a vaccine in record time to combat a worldwide pandemic that is bringing death. I merely want to point out that in the Christian worldview, science is not the most certain thing. The God of the Bible is. Science is a tool that points us to him, and he supersedes science. But scientism seeks salvation through advanced technology. So transhumanists assert that we can live forever. We can prevent death. And and that's not a new desire, right? Didn't, Didn't Ponce de Leon, if you remember your history, Ponce de Leon seek the fountain of youth? Right? Why? Because legend had it that if you drank its waters, it would grant you what? Immortality. Ironically, it was believed to be in Florida, which is where many people go during their retirement years. (laughs) We have a fascination with manipulating, delaying, even defeating death. But does this obsession with technology lead us to true dignity? 
Many Christians, I think, functionally put their faith in technology. In fact, Andy Crouch wrote a fantastic book called The TechWise Family, where he encourages Christians to limit their use of technology or to put technology in its proper place, as he puts it. He writes this whole chapter on end-of-life issues where he observes that people often embrace the newest technology in a pursuit of everlasting life. Why do you wear that smartwatch? To stay healthier and live longer? How many experimental drug trials are you willing to pursue? Now, that's not a bad idea, right? But is there a limit? How long will you prolong an expensive stay at the hospital in order to delay death? Crouch writes this. He says, alarmingly, there is evidence from research that people most likely request, the people most likely to request these futile but fantastically expensive final measures are actually Christians, the very ones who should be able to trust their mortal bodies to the care of God. So the way to show dignity, he says, is to know our limits and to have the courage to care for one another when we cannot care for ourselves, which ultimately leads to the secular view's lack of dignity because secularism dismisses God, theology, and ultimate meaning. If there is no God... There is no hope in the life to come, of the life to come. There is no hope of rescue. There's no, there's no ultimate meaning. As Solomon writes, meaningless, meaningless. Life is meaningless. In fact, there are studies that have shown the reason suicide rates have risen is due to lack of meaning in people's lives. So you can try to extend your life, but for what? Just to live longer? To make this world a better place for your kids? Larry King can freeze his body and wake up in 100 years, but then what? Right? He's going to die again, isn't he? In the secular view, the universe will end no matter what. So I would argue that without God providing meaning in our lives, dignity at the end is an illusion. We will all die hopeless. Dignity comes when we embrace the word of the psalmist who said this, our days may come to 70 years, even 80, if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but toil, a trouble and sorrow. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Because life is short. Right? Our strength will fade. There will be trouble and sorrow, but only the Christian view provides meaning in suffering. God teaches us, he shapes us, he prepares us for the future, and when we recognize that our days are numbered, we stop trying to unendingly extend them, but we gain wisdom instead. And so the greatest way to give someone dignity at the end of life is to offer them hope. It's to offer them love and value. It's to remind them that while you cannot go with them, There is a Savior waiting on the other side who will embrace them with loving arms because they are valuable. So finally, never neglect the aged. Never neglect the aged. Now, I mentioned this earlier, but it needs to be stated again. Seniors are valuable, extremely valuable. So many of us have lived 70, 80 years longer, and we've gained wisdom that needs to be passed on. Society often treats seniors like they're expensive burdens. Christians should never do that. Once you hit a certain age, society starts to overlook you and treat you like a nuisance. Right? Advertisers want that prized 18 to 49 demographic. 
Does the voice of a wise senior not matter anymore? One of the greatest tragedies, again, of this pandemic has been watching precious older souls living in isolation, unable to seek friends and family for months. Grandparents missing their grandchildren. We must also recognize how desperately we need our seniors because the loss of the older generation is the loss of beauty in our world. So while this message has been primarily focused on death and dying, we must be keenly aware to show dignity to those who are living towards the end of life. How do we do that? Let me briefly offer three actions. First, attention. Attention. We must listen and learn from those experienced. Now, my grandmother's 90 years old, as she lived through the Great Depression, right, World War II, Vietnam, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the information and technological revolution. What is it like to live through all of that? When she's gone, I'll miss all that wisdom. Offering attention communicates dignity. Second, time. If you don't make time for someone, they feel neglected. And so as we age, we slow down, right? We don't hear as well. (laughs) It requires more time to listen. And sadly, people don't make the time to adequately be present with and listen to the older generation. But offering time communicates dignity, that you still matter. Third, sacrifice. At the end of life, the body breaks down and we require more care. The things we were able to do on our own, we no longer can, right? Simple tasks like bathing and dressing and even eating. Now we need help, and that can feel, that can feel embarrassing, right? Showing dignity towards the end of life means we sacrifice for the people who once sacrificed for us. It means, out of love, we put aside our personal agendas and become the hands and feet of Jesus for our elderly neighbors and loved ones. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent, or as Jessica Burke writes for the ERLC, in an article, she, in an article entitled, We Need Our Elderly Neighbors, she says this, the end of a long life can seem impersonal when spoken about in clinical terms. But when you love a person with declining health in their old age, the deterioration of the body is not impersonal, it's human, and points us to our need for a savior. So while we should reject the secular view of death, we should embrace the gift of scientific discovery. Right? In 1900, the average lifespan was 47 years. Today, the average lifespan is 78 years and growing due to medical advances and quality of life. And so as a result, as we've already talked about, there are end-of-life ethical issues that we did not have to deal with 100 years ago. And so in this last part, as we finish up here, I asked Jack Krauss, a hospice chaplain focusing on nursing homes to offer some practical insights on these ethical issues and end-of-life care. So I'd invite you to watch this interview. Jack? As we, uh, as we've been talking about this whole idea of dignity and humanity, and there, there's a couple ethical issues that are prevalent in our culture today. So I wanted to ask you, as somebody who certainly sees this potentially on a, on a regular basis, how should Christians think about issues of uh, euthanasia 
and physician-assisted suicide, really complicated issues. What, what advice would you give us as we think about those things? Yeah. You know, originally, euthanasia very simply meant having a good death, a, a death that was free or relatively free of pain. Um, that's what the word basically means, taken from the Greek. And yet, you know, those of you that have read Orwell's 1984 know that we change definitions of words and everybody thinks that they mean something different than they do. Um, euthanasia now means that we're going to help somebody out the door. And now we've advanced it to physician-assisted suicide. I call it PAS just for abbreviation. But, um, you know, that premature ending of life. Of course, the problem is the taking of a human life is a violation of the 10th commandment. And it's actually a violation of a much earlier mm. commandment. And that's the one given by God to Moses after the flood. He said, the one who takes a person's life, his life shall be required. Um, so uh, you say, well, you know, what does that mean? Well, um, yeah, the commandment says you shall not kill. What does that mean? Kind of helps, I think, if we get a little bit more background in what that means. The word kill, of course, obviously doesn't mean in any and all cases. Uh, you look at what the Westminster Catechism, larger catechism, says about that. Um, it says that the sins forbidden in the Sixth Commandment uh, uh, says all taking away of the life of, of, of ourselves mm. or others, except in the case of public justice, therefore capital punishment, lawful war. Uh, there's a good question. How do you have a lawful war? Um, <laughs> or necessary defense. The neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life. So it's not simply the taking of life, but what happens if we redraw, withdraw the means for life so that a person dies? That would be a violation of this command. And whatever else tends to the destruction to the life of any. But you know, the commandment doesn't simply say, don't kill, but implied in that is the idea that we will do something positive, proactive to keep life going. Mm -hmm. um, the duties of the sixth commandment would include lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others and avoiding all occasions which tend to the unjust taking of the life of any and and you know the positive aspect of that means comforting and helping the distressed and protecting and defending the innocent you know as we have right to life sunday isn't that what we're doing is we're saying we're going to protect the life of the unborn because they can't protect themselves and of course, as changes have gone on in our society, not only do we, as a society, allow the death of the unborn at the hands of physicians and the medical community, but now we're beginning to allow the death of aged, infirm, those that have no value to society, mm. we, can, we can end their lives. And of course, you just have to look back to the, what the Nazis have done during World War II and, and see the social effect that has come from that. It really weakens the fabric of society. So that pretty soon you begin to question whose life is valuable. Ultimately, every life is valuable, even if it doesn't look very economically efficient to somebody else. Right, and I think that's something we've been trying to, to hammer home in this series that every human life does have value uh, especially those that are vulnerable, and even if even if there's, you know, people that you don't think are valuable, they are because they have dignity because they're made in the image of God. 
So that's a, that's a great point. Um, you know, another question that I often hear as it relates to end of life issues, people are wrestling with how do I, you know, care for my uh, dying parent or grandparent? People are living longer nowadays. And so there's issues that, that come up related to that. Uh, what advice would you give us in, uh, in, in, in those situations? Okay. Uh, excellent question because more and more people are beginning to think back to the way it was handled generations ago. And that is instead of putting somebody in a nursing home, we'll keep them home. And especially because of the virus situation, um, nursing homes are not for the most part allowing people to come in and visit their, their loved ones. And so the people in the nursing homes are suffering from isolation. And so families, not large scale, but here and there are taking their, their loved ones home to care for them. Um, I would ask, what is your goal? What is your motive? What is your standard when you take on care like that? The goal, you know, why are you doing this? You say, well, because grandma is really not doing well in that nursing home. Well, that's good. That's, that's a good thing to address. But I think a much greater goal is, is the whole encompassing of what our lives are about. And that is chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So whatever I do, Paul says, I do to the glory of God and I do to the best of my abilities. So taking that person home, my goal should be God is going to get the glory in this. Now, oftentimes we don't think about that, but that's really what we ought to have as our goal. Hmm. Motive, again. Well, you know, I, I, I want to serve grandma in this case. Okay, what's your standard for doing that? Well, I'm going to look for the best possible practice of doing that. It, and, and, and so what I would, I would ask the person is, have you thought about what this is going to entail for you? You know, Jesus spoke in one of his parables about the individual who goes to build a tower and he realizes he doesn't have enough cash to finish it. And so you got a partly built tower and he's bailed out on it. Um, it would be good to investigate what it's going to take to care for grandma or grandpa or mom or dad. You know, what's this going to entail? Well, it's going to be more than simply cooking dinner for them and washing the dishes afterwards. It, it's going to involve every single step of their particular care. If not immediately, eventually it will. It's going to involve watching medications, watching out for their safety, um, those kinds of things. Um, second thing I, I would say is get as much information as you can as to what that caregiving entails. Um, ask around and see what kind of preparation can be done to reduce the stress because quite frankly, caregiving is very stressful. Now, those of you who are parents and in particular mothers know how great the stress is when you're caring for a child. And how many first-time mothers are extremely fatigued because that kid is up all the time. Uh, Bob, I see you snickering right. a little bit. Right. I think right. maybe you've, <laughs> you've, you've sung that song and danced that dance. Yeah. Understand that. And now the thing with the child is the child is, is going to outgrow that. Not as soon as you would like, but will outgrow that. But realize the older person, as you take them under your care, it's going backwards. And so the care is going to be increasing as time goes on. So it's not just, well, this is the way it is now, and it's going to stay that way. No, 
quite frankly, it's probably going to get a lot worse. Mm. So be prepared for what's going on. You need to also plan on somebody to spot you. You know, if you go to the gym and you're working out with weights, you want somebody there just in case you slip, the barbell slips. You really don't want that thing to cross your throat when you're doing a bench press. So you need somebody to come along and help to give you time off because caregiving, it's fatiguing. And there is such a thing as caregiver fatigue. So caregivers really need to have somebody to come alongside to give them a break. Day or two a week, maybe several hours a day, every day. But, but there needs to be a break in there. You need to get refreshed. Remember, Jesus told his disciples, come away. You, you, you need to get away from this ministry thing, and you need to take a break. Caregivers do as well. And, of course, it's also very important to remember that your service is to that person, but you're not really just serving them, nor are you serving yourself. You're serving Christ. And so when those difficult times come, those difficult times come, you need to remember that there is going to be joy on the other side of what may be a bad day. Hebrews chapter 12, I think it's verse 2, says that, that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Think about all that the cross meant. Jesus did that for the joy that was set on the other side of the cross. He wasn't a masochist going to the cross because he liked suffering. Haven't met a person yet that honestly likes suffering. But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and then sat down on the right hand of the Father. That's, that's to be our joy. When it's all over, all is said and done, we know that our Father will say, well done, good and faithful servant. For the joy set before him. At the end of life, if you want people to know they have dignity, point people to the one who died in their place so that death would not be the end. Jesus loves you so much that he died so you don't have to. And when you realize that, death is a boat ride across the ocean. Right? If, again, if you like C.S. Lewis, it's a boat ride with Reepicheep to Aslan's country. If you like J.R.R. Tolkien, it's a boat ride with Gandalf to the Grey Havens. It's the vision of the beyond, of what is to come which is so much better than the toil and suffering that we have experienced here. There will be new heavens and new earth. To not tell people about this reality would be a disgrace and an indignity. Because every human life, at every stage, is valuable. And at the end, we're meant to die in each other's arms, surrounded by those we love. That's dignity. In the end, we're meant to lament and mourn over the loss of a valuable human life. Those tears bring dignity. In the end, we're meant to watch our loved ones and, and friends pass into the next forever life as they catch a glimpse of their Savior. And so I'd invite the worship team to come on stage for one final song. And as the worship team comes, I want to close with the words from Nicholas, Chris, I'm sorry, Nicholas Walterstorff. He reminds us that at the end of life, it is okay to cry and mourn. He reminds us that Jesus blesses those who mourn. Walter Storff calls us aching visionaries. And so here's what he writes. He says, who are the mourners? The mourners are those who have caught a glimpse of God's new day, who ache with all their being for that day's coming, and who break out into tears 
when confronted with its absence. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm of peace, there is neither death nor tears. And whoever aches whenever they see someone crying tears over death, the mourners are aching visionaries. Because one day, death will be no more. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that through the gift of your Son, through the sacrifice of your Son, and through the resurrection of your Son, we can have a different view of death. We can have a different view of the end of life. And so I pray for my friends here, again, who are wrestling with this issue, who are living this issue, Lord God, I pray for your grace. I pray for your peace. I pray that you would lift eyes, lift faces up to you, up to the hills, and recognize that you are the one who brings help. You are the one who brings peace. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice, and it is in your name that we pray. Amen.